I want to follow up now on our study of uh, the divine yes in Christ. Uh, previously, I just did some comments to kind of elaborate and clarify some of the points I made in those two uh, studies. And uh, today I want to do the same thing. I wanted to offer you just some uh, elaborations, some comments, some further discussion. Uh, it's very important to me that at, uh, as we pursue this study of 2 Corinthians, uh, that this study is so vitally important to your mental and spiritual and relational health, your understanding of the gospel in its fullness and its ability to transform you into the image of Christ in thought, word, and deed. I can't imagine anything more powerful, more glorious, more wonderful uh, than actually coming to know Jesus at this depth, where we are becoming like him. Uh, we're becoming like him uh, by the renewing of our mind so that we be are thinking like him. We have a, a Christ-based world view, and we have a heart uh, for uh, the Father's will, to do the Father's will, and to uh, care for his people, and to love those whom he brings across our path from the world, that we can share the love of God and the, and the power of God to save with them. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to walk in the footprints of Jesus. Now, it is a narrow road that has, is a road that has only room for one set of footprints, and those footprints are bloodstained, and so we must be mindful of that. Uh, it isn't necessarily, believe it or not, the popular thing to do, even within Christian circles. There's a popular Christianity, there's a cultural Christianity, there's a, a lot of um, uh, approval uh, awaiting you if you want to be part of the latest happening trend within Christianity. There's a lot of ridiculous things happening in the media, like the Chosen and the Jesus Gets Us uh, campaign. Um, there's, uh, there's just never, it never ends. You know, we all remember what would Jesus do back in the nineties and, uh, and, and the left behind series. And there's always some new thing that's happening. And there are people who profess to be Christians who are kind of waiting for the next new thing, the next new fad, the next new trend. Uh, that's not me. That's not you. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the fact that the ministry of the New Covenant of the Spirit, which Paul and his associates are, is the means, the God-ordained means, by which we are united with Christ, and then the same means by which we are transformed into his image, whatever increasing glory. Now that's the promise of the second Corinthians. And it stands over and against those who are ministers of the letter, uh, who claim to be ministers and even apostles of Christ, but who point you back to um, the law, 
who point you back to national Israel as opposed to Jesus himself as Israel, as the new covenant, as the seed of Abraham. And so they don't mind seeing Jesus as part of God's plan. They just don't see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan. And that's where we part, because when you don't see Jesus as the fulfillment, the entirety, and the scope of God's plan and purposes and promises, you have to fill it in with something, right? Uh, if Jesus is just a means to some other end, then we've, we've got the wrong understanding of the gospel. So one of the things that's important as you live out this new narrative, the narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit in the present day, uh, which we've already shared with you, is the future eschatological salvation, including the full restoration of the presence of God to his people, so that as we learn in Revelation 21, that there is no temple, there, it, it, God himself is with his people, he himself wipes away every tear, there is no more mourning, there is no more sorrow, the, the old things have passed away. And then to realize that which we read in Revelation 21 uh, is speaking to us of the fully realized redemption that Christ himself inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, that that future reality, that future redemption and, that, and the full realization of it is uh, at work even now so that we are in a living, living in a now and not yet status, but truly a now, which you'll see as I go further in my comments here. So, so today I want to just elaborate for a few minutes more about this um, guarantee of redemption. So to understand the now and not yet of redemption may create a little insecurity for you if you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm here now, I'm, I'm redeemed now, I'm being redeemed now, but, you know, and there's a lot of teaching throughout church history that would try to tell you that, well, okay, you're saved today, but you better watch out, you may not be tomorrow. You don't do the right things. You don't comply with the rules. You better watch out because you might fall and you might backslide or you might end up in hell after all. And so most of us have been exposed to that kind of teaching, that probationary redemption. And then they call that the gospel. And it stems from the notion that somehow we were instrumental in saving ourselves in the first place, that Christ made salvation possible, that grace is what motivated God, but it's not something that is actively working in our life, that Christ made salvation possible, but ultimately it's up to us and our free will choices and the things we do. And, and I once had a, a fellow student of mine while I was in uh, graduate school <clears throat> studying counseling psychology. 
And she mentioned to me that she was a member of the Orthodox Church. It's kind of the Eastern version of the Roman Catholic Church. And um, she told me that when she was baptized, there was a place for her reserved in heaven. But then she immediately began to say, well, but, but I have to do good things. I have to attend to the sacraments. I have to, I have to be active in the church. I have to do good works to preserve and, and maintain and, and preserve that, that place in heaven because I can lose it. Well, see, that's the gospel of yes and no that we talk about in 2 Corinthians. That Paul said is not his gospel. It has nothing to do with his gospel. He said that in um, verse 19. He said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. There is a gospel of yes and no that is very common. In fact, it's the most prevalent form of the of the gospel. It's not even the gospel, really. But it's the most prevalent form of, of teaching that you hear. That you're saved by grace, but you're really in the final analysis, you're you're uh you stay saved by works. And so I want to just remind you of our text again today, when he says uh, in our study of the divine yes in Christ. He concludes the reading of our text with, get my glasses back on here. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, listen carefully now, guaranteeing what is to come. End quote. So what has God done? The new covenant of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, tied to the new covenant, because inherent within the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit. That's the promise. The promise is that God will send his Spirit to dwell within us in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. He will cause us to be have a, a new heart, a new nature. That's what happened with uh, Nicodemus. And Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born of water and the Spirit, John chapter 3. And what Jesus was referring to there is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, the promise of the new covenant for Israel, what Nicodemus didn't understand and probably thought he understood was that, yeah, that was going to happen at some future millennium or some, some future and, and down the road in the, in the, in the, the, at the end of human history when God restored Israel to its prominence and, and restored his presence. What Nicodemus didn't expect was to hear Jesus say, this, is, you need this, you need, this needs to happen now. This is the only way you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven is now, present, present tense. And that threw Nicodemus for a loop. He, he, he could not understand that this was happening in the moment. Right in front of him was the 
personification of God's promises. The incarnate God was standing before him, telling him, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. So we have these promises in the prophets, promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus, though they're not yet fully realized, as we see promised and pictured for us in Revelation 21. They're nonetheless at work in us today, as you will see in our discussion. So what is God has done? What God has done? We've learned that God is faithful in the study of the divine yes in Christ. We learned that God is faithful and that God's faithfulness is revealed perfectly in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We learned that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled. So what has God done? We certainly have discovered so far in this study as well that the gospel of Paul, the gospel of the new covenant of the Spirit, is a God-centered, God-focused gospel. It's not a man-centered gospel. There's no place, there's no role in here. God doesn't do 99% of the work and then leave it 1% up to you. Even your regeneration, your conversion, was a work of grace through faith. Even the faith that you, by which you believed and were united with Christ and received for forgiveness of sins and became one with Christ was a gift. That's Ephesians 2. 6 through 10. Saving faith is a gift of God. It is God who initiates. It is God who accomplishes and sustains saving faith in his people. So, there's no spiritual elitism. That's what, that's what Paul's point was here. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. The Apostle Paul saying, hey, I'm saved on the same basis you are. I'm persevering in the faith on the same basis that you are. I'm not a spiritual guru, and you don't dare look to me to be the one who makes you stand firm in Christ. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. No doubt the false teachers in Corinth were saying, you know, look to us, we'll guide you, we're the faithful guides, we're the true apostles, you look to us and and lean on us and lean into us and do what we say and you'll stand firm in Christ. I mean, isn't that what the Roman Catholic Church teaches? Your obedience to the Pope and to your local priest is the one who is what saves you. And there are evangelical pastors today who elevate themselves in no much less different way. You better do what I say. I mean, there are, there are celebrity pastors who really believe that uh, you're, you're going to stand firm because you uh, are part of my church. Your relationship to me. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's not me. It's not Timothy. It's not Silas that makes you stand firm. It's God himself, God himself causes you to stand firm. <clears throat> so there's no spiritual elitism among us. <clears throat> so what has God done? 
Well, it's causing you to stand. Now, this is something we want to take a look at real briefly here. Uh, and a few other texts just to show you that it is a theme throughout the New Testament. This isn't something that we're trying to build a doctrine as so many do today based on one abstract text. <coughs> Excuse me. In Philippians 1 6, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Has God begun a work in you? Has he placed his Holy Spirit to dwell within you? Then you can be confident that he's going to fulfill it. He's going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is to say, until it is fully realized on that day. Let's look at uh, Philippians 2. 12 and 13, he says, um, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, God's purpose in your life is to conform you into the image of his Son. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Think of that. That's <laughs> going to happen. If you are in Christ... God is going to conform you into the image of his son. Uh, it's not an option. You can't opt out. God will conform you to the image of his son. He will discipline you if necessary. And he will discipline you. Uh, Hebrews 12 is clear about that. There's nothing wrong with being disciplined by our loving Heavenly Father. And he will work in you and through you and with you to bring you into the fullness of his son. More on that in just a moment. <clears throat> Let's look at Jude 24. Jude verse 24 says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Remember, we were once dead in trespasses and sins. Ezekiel 37 is another uh, illustration of that. The valley of dry bones. Valley of dry bones. We, we don't have any um, ability to contribute to our salvation when we're dead. And there were a bunch of dry bones. But God has raised us and made us uh, alive in Christ and has united us with his Son. So now, all the glory goes to him. Let me give you a few others real quick here. Romans 16, 25. Isn't the gospel great news? I mean, for most of my Christian or my early Christian experience, I, it was only kind of good news. I mean, if it was left up to me, ultimately, that would, it was good news that Jesus made the gospel, made the gospel and... Uh, known to me and that I, I was saved initially by it. But if it was up to me to stay saved and to persevere, then uh, that's not good news. I knew myself too well. Verse 25, Romans 16, to him, Now to him who is able 
to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith. That's the mystery. The mystery is that all the promises of God to Israel are revealed, and now, through the gospel, the Gentiles are included in those promises. God always intended to save humanity, not just Israel, but to save humanity through Israel. By the time our Lord, uh, our Lord's incarnation, um, he um, proved to be the only. Israel had fallen so far from God's original promise and, and intention that there was only one faithful Jew in Israel at that point, and it was our Lord Jesus Christ. He represented all of God's intention and purposes for Israel fulfilled. Uh, let's see. Let's move on here. I don't want to keep you too long. This is just a commentary. So, what has God done? He's causing us to persevere. He's anointed us, says our text, 2 Corinthians 2. Let's turn back there. He has anointed us, which means he has, uh, literally it means he has Christed, Christed us, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-D. In other words, he's united us with his Son. He's united us with the Anointed One. A lot of people these days, especially in the charismatic world, uh, claim to be anointed. <laughs> I was there. I was in, in the midst of that tradition for uh, 20 years. I've been out of it now for another 20 years. And I'm so glad because there is no, no shortage of people running around claiming to be anointed. And they looked and acted any, anything but like Christ. But he has anointed us. And then he goes on to say, his seal of ownership. He set his seal of ownership on us. Listen, if you are in Christ, if you are united with Christ, God says to you today, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Because you are in the beloved. You are in the one to whom God originally said that to at baptism. So you are sealed, seal of ownership. The world, the devil, the flesh, false prophets, even death has no ultimate claim on you. You belong to God. And then he says he put his spirit in us, in our hearts. He's indwelt us. All the saints under the Old Covenant knew the anointing of the Spirit. David did, certainly. They knew that the Holy Spirit would come upon them at times. But it was only after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost that God's holy people became the temple itself. And so that God takes up residence within you, as well as among you in your corporate fellowship. So now God dwells in you. And that represents, Paul says here, concludes, as a deposit. The indwelling spirit 
is your guarantee of what is to come. The indwelling spirit is a pledge, a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It, it's, a, it's a business term. In the first century, it was a business term. You, you bought a business or you made an agreement to purchase something, and you would give that a faithful pledge. You give a pledge of your intention to complete that purchase by paying a down payment, a deposit, and that sealed the deal. It was just as if the purchase had actually been complete. So God has set his seal of approval, by the way, on you because he is of the approval. And, and by the way, that has nothing to do with baptism. Nothing to do with water baptism. There's, there's no little mark of ownership that occurs on you, invisible mark of ownership on your forehead, especially if you're an infant. That happens when you're baptized. That's, there's nothing in the text that even alludes to that, let alone affirms that. But God has put his spirit in you and dwelt you as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And what is to come? What is to come? Now I'll conclude with this. I don't want to go too long. Philippians 3.20. Uh, let's see here. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's, that's one of the things that's to come. Uh, if you're getting older like I am, you're looking forward to that glorified body. We're very consciously aware as we get older that we're wasting away externally, even though we're being renewed internally day by day. And then finally, let me conclude with 1 John 3. This would be a good way to conclude here. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. And this is a good text for a now and, and not what and now not now and not yet. Excuse me. Understanding, he says in verse one: "See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are." That's in the emphatic, by the way. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. See, that's it. It will become so united to Christ that there's not a lot of difference, not a lot of daylight in our character between Christ and us, then the world's going to start treating us just like it treated him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Note that word, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. There you go. That's the eschatological reality of the paradigm that out from which we all live. We are now children of God, and yet we have not been fully known what it's going to be. But we know, listen carefully now, we know that when Christ appears, this is what is guaranteed to you, we shall be like him. We shall be fully like Jesus one day, perfected in his image. For we shall see him as he is. That's the guarantee of what is to come. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. 
just as he is pure. A lot of people would accuse biblical doctrine of creating passivity or, if, or grace to be something that, uh, uh, doctrines of grace to be something that uh, encourages uh, passivity or, or sin even. And that's simply not what John is saying here at all, is it? He's saying that if we get it, if we understand what God is doing in us and conforming us into the image of his Son with ever-increasing glory, as we'll learn later in this study. We understand that we want to be like him as much as possible in this time, this now that we're in. And though we'll not yet be fully perfected in that until we see him, that nonetheless serves as tremendous motivation for us to purify ourselves just as he is pure. So that's what God has done in, under the new covenant of the Spirit. That's what God is doing in you even now. And it's guaranteed, folks, my dear brothers and sisters, what God is doing in uniting you and conforming you into the image of his Son in thought, word, and deed, and by nature too, by the way, is guaranteed. And if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, that's your guarantee. Not your church attendance, not your tithe record, which is another story altogether, not your uh, baptismal record. It is the fact that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. That's your guarantee that God has placed his seal of ownership on you. May the Lord continue to strengthen you and illuminate your mind to these things so that you can know the joy of your salvation. Amen.